Hi, I'm Chris Irwin. Welcome to The Come Up, a podcast that interviews entrepreneurs and leaders. I thought I would take the more productive path, the one where I didn't leave podcasting. And I made this decision in December of 2016 to myself and then spent the next couple of months just like tucking away money. And when I say that like I saved money before starting the business, I saved $7,000. This week's episode features Greta Cohn, the founder and CEO of Transmitter Media. Now, Greta's experience runs the gamut of all things audio. From being a touring cellist with the band Cursive and teaching radio workshops at NYU, to working in audiobooks, ringtones, and most recently podcasting. And Greta's done some groundbreaking work along the way, like turning Freakonomics Radio into an omni-channel media brand, launching the number one podcast show, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, and helping build HAL, which eventually became part of Stitcher. But Greta's career transformed in 2017 when she decided to do podcasting on her own terms. So with only $7,000 of savings, Greta founded Transmitter Media and quickly began producing premium podcasts for clients like TED, Spotify, and Walmart. Today, Greta is focused on scaling her Brooklyn-based team and creating more, as she describes, beautiful things. Greta's love for her craft and team is so genuine, and her story is a great example of how sheer will and passion are the ultimate enablers. All right, let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I believe that you grew up in New York City. Is that right? Well, I grew up in the suburbs. So okay. I grew up on Long Island. My mom is from Queens and my dad is from Brooklyn. Yeah. And this there's like a sort of like mythology of their meeting. And my mom's dad was a butcher in Queens. And my dad would always tell us that they didn't have toothpaste growing up. And <laughs> he would go over to my mom's house and just like eat. Yeah. But they, uh, yeah, they moved out to Long Island after they got married. Nice. And what, what part of Long Island? Initially, I grew up on the eastern end in a town called Mount Sinai. And then when I was 13, in a very traumatic move at that age, uh, we moved to Huntington, which was more like smack in the middle of the island. My cousins are from Huntington. That's where they oh. grew up. But then I think they moved to like Lloyd's Neck shortly after. Why was that move so traumatic at 13? You know, I think it's that really formative age where you are sort of coming in to yourself as a human, as a teenager. Um, and I remember like writing my name on the wall in the closet uh, <laughs> because I wanted to leave my mark on that particular house that, that we grew up at. But then, you know, then we moved and I made new friends and it was fine. Everything is scary at that age. It's like, oh, I have yeah. my friends. And if I move to a new high school or middle school, I'll never have the same friends again. My best friend at the time, Alessandra, never to be talked to or seen again. <laughs> yeah. What was the household like growing up? Was there interest in audio from your parents? I mean, I think you mentioned, remind me, your father was a butcher and your mother was... No, no, those are my grandparents. Those are your grandparents, um, got it. Yeah, no, um, my parents were both teachers in the okay. education system. My dad was a teacher his whole career life. Yeah. He taught shop and psychology classes and computer classes. And my mom ended up being a superintendent of a school district on Long Island. She got her start as a phys ed teacher and then became an English teacher and worked her way up 
uh, to superintendent. The sort of like interest in audio they instilled in me and my two brothers extremely early. We all started learning to play string instruments at the age of three through the Suzuki method. The Suzuki method? Yeah, which is like an ear training style of learning music. So you essentially at three years old, you cannot possibly understand how to physically play an instrument. And I remember a lot of time spent in those early group lessons, just like hugging the cello and singing this song. Like, I love my cello very much. I play it every day. And crawling up and down the bow with spider fingers is what they called it, because your fingers kind of look like spiders crawling up and down the bow. And we all started playing string instruments at that age. I played cello, and then the brother who came after me played violin, and the brother who came after him also played cello. Wow. And did your parents play instruments as well? Stringed instruments? No. My dad loves to say he can play the radio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I respect that. I think, you know, like they are educators. They're really invested in like the full education of a person. And so I think that they thought it was a good teaching discipline. Yeah. It certainly required a kind of discipline. Like I can recall really fighting against practicing because I had to practice probably every day and I would rebel and not want to do it, but it was not really an option. And I'm glad that ultimately like I was pressed to continue to play because playing music has played such a huge part of my life. Yeah, clearly. It led you, which we'll get to, into founding a podcast production company and network and so much more. So very big impact. But I get it. I began playing the alto saxophone in fourth grade. And my twin brother was playing the clarinet. And it was lessons with Mr. Slonum every week, an hour of practice every day. And it was, you know, when you're putting that on top of sports and homework and academics, it's a lot and it's intense. And there's moments where you really don't want to do it and it's not fun. And then there's moments where you're very thankful for it. And I think a lot of the more thankful moments came later in my life. But if you can get some of those early on, it's meaningful. When you first started playing, did you really enjoy it? Or was it just like, oh, this is what I'm just supposed to do? I remember enjoying it. I remember in particular being able to do little recitals every so often. And I know there are photographs of myself sort of like in recital (laughs) that, you know, I've seen even recently. And there is such like a joy in that. And I think that showing off like something that you've done and your family claps for you and says, good job. (laughs) Ultimately, what it feels like to play in a group, like in an ensemble, it's pretty magical. I played in orchestras starting in grade school all the way up through college. And there's something really amazing about like the collective and your part. And, you know, you can't mess up (laughs) because like, it's glaringly obvious if you're the one out of like the section of 12 cellists who's like, got their bow going the wrong direction or the wrong note playing. But it's really like, it's also really beautiful to play in a group like that. Yeah. It's a special team sport, right? You rely on other people and people rely on you. When it comes together, it's an absolutely beautiful event, you know, for you and the audience. Yeah. I also played soccer growing up, speaking of team sports. Okay. What position? (laughs) Um, I was defense. They would like enlist me to like run around and like shadow the most powerful player on the other team. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why, but I remember that. (laughs) I was very similar. I started out as like a recreation all-star as like a forward and then got moved to right fullback and was just defense. That was my soccer career. All right. So interesting. So yeah, speaking of studying music, I think that when you went to university, 
you almost went to study music at a conservatory, but you ended up going to Brown instead. What were you thinking? Because were you going down a path where it's like, I want to be in audio, I want to create music. What was your headspace there, kind of like as you started to go through advanced education and beginnings of your career? I remember collecting flyers for conservatories. I was interested in conservatory. I think, though, that as I kind of began to really think about like what that would mean, I don't know that I was thinking like really broadly, like, oh, you know, like no one at 17 or whatever really has a full picture of yeah. what those choices ultimately mean. But I'm glad that I didn't go to music school. I was always like the worst player in like the best section. So I remember like I was in the New York Youth Symphony and I was definitely like not the best player in like that section, but it was really hard to get in. Right. And one summer I went and studied at the Tanglewood Institute in Boston, which was again, like extremely competitive and hard to get into, but I was definitely not the best player there. And I think that like thinking about what it would mean to devote oneself entirely to that, I had other interests, you know, I wasn't so completely focused on being a performer that it didn't ultimately feel like it would make a lot of sense because I wanted to study history. I wanted, and and obviously like you go to a conservatory, you have like a well-rounded education ultimately, I would imagine, but it's not where I think I ultimately wanted to go. That was not the direction that I ultimately wanted to go. Yeah. It's a really big commitment, you know, going from Good to great, but I mean, you you are great. You are getting into these like elite orchestras, but to be like the first chair, that's a level of dedication and practice. It's really tough. It's funny. I actually yeah. read a David Foster Wallace article about the sport of tennis and he played and he was very good. And I think he could have even gone pro, but he's like, I'm good. I put in enough hours and I have fun with it. But for me to go to the next level, he's like, it's not fun to me. And I don't want to do that. It's not for yeah. him. So you make a decision and you go to Brown. What's your study focus at Brown? I ultimately was in the American Studies Department, but I had a special sort of like crossover with the music department. So I took a lot of music classes. I took a lot of American Studies classes, which is basically like cultural history, you know, social history, history through like the lens of various social movements or pop culture, which I think is really fascinating. And I wound everything together so that my final my my senior thesis was about cover songs and the history of sort of like copying and sort of like the idea of creating various versions okay. of any original work yeah. and kind of like the sort of cultural history and critical theory lens of it. But also just I selected three songs and I traced their history over time from a, like a performance perspective, but also from a like, where, how does this song fit into like the narrative of music history? Do you remember the three songs? I think I did Twist and Shout. Okay. Um, I Shall Be Released. And I can't remember the third one, but I had a lot of fun writing it. And I really liked the sort of like bridging between the music department and the American studies department. And strangely, there are so many journalists who came up through American studies. There are like several producers on my staff who were American studies students in college, I think, because it just gives you this permission to think about storytelling in the world from just this very like unique cultural vantage point. Did you have a certain expectation where you had an idea of what that story was going to be over time? Or were you surprised? And as you saw how the narrative played out with the original song and recording and production and then the covers, anything that stands out of like, oh, I did not expect this, but I found this very fascinating. I, I don't really remember at this <laughs> yeah, point. Sorry, putting you I on the spot. That, like, it's, it's a long time ago. The thing was like, 
more than 100 pages and like is probably a doorstopper now at my parents' house. <laughs> I remember that I put a big picture of a mushroom on the last page. Like John Cage, I think, wrote a lot about mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and so I wove some of his work into the thesis, but this idea that like the mushroom takes the sort of like dirt and crap and stuff that's on the forest floor and turns it into this like organic material, a mushroom. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember the specifics. <laughs> yeah, no, all, all good. I mean, my thesis was on the banana wars and that is, it's not even worthy of being a doorstopper. That's just like straight <laughs> to the trash. Um, but I did for a music class, I think I did break down a song by the Sex Pistols and I can't cool. remember specifically which one, but I think I dove deep into the lyrics and I, I think I was pretty disappointed. I expected to find like more meaning and have more fun with it. And I think maybe it was my like young mind. I couldn't go deeper than I thought I could. Anyway, so all right, fast forward to 2001. And as I was going through your bio, this really stood out and it hits close to home. You become a cellist for some alternative rock bands, including... Cursive, The Faints, and Bright Eyes. And I just remember The Faint, I think a song from 2008, The Geeks Were Right. I remember listening to that shortly after college. But so tell me, what was that transition going from university to then moving, I think you moved to Omaha out of New York to play in these rock bands? So when I was in college, I continued to play in the school orchestra, but I also met some friends who became collaborators and we would just improvise in the lounge, like, you know, bass, drums, guitar, and cello. And that was really freeing for me. Like I had always, you know, growing up on Long Island, I had such easy access to New York City. And for whatever reason, I was really given like a lot of freedom to, I would take the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan and go to concerts all through high school, like rock concerts. What were some of your earliest concert memories? Purposefully getting to like an Afghan wigs show and like planting myself in the front row because like I wanted to be as like close as possible to the stage. And so I used to go to concerts all the time and I was really, really just interested and like, I wasn't only a person who like thought about classical music at all. And so I met this group of people and, you know, formed this little group together. And so I was playing music at, in college, like eventually joining a band, mostly with like locals in Providence. And we became the opening act for a lot of bands that were coming through. Um, and what type of music were you playing, Greta? It was like arty rock. Arty rock, okay. Yeah, some of it was instrumental, but then some of it was like pop. I think uh, one of the bands I was in was called The Beauty Industry, and it was probably like a little bit reminiscent of like Built to Spill and the Magnetic Fields and like a little bit like poppy. So in that band, we would serve as the opening acts for a lot of artists that were coming through. And through that, I was able to meet the folks from Saddle Creek, from Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. And I didn't know that I made an impression on them, but I did. And after I graduated, I moved to New York. I didn't really know exactly where I was headed. I got a job working in the development office at Carnegie Hall and I didn't love it. Yeah. <laughs> like I had to wear suits. And one day the folks from Omaha called my parents' home phone and left a message and asked if I would come out and play on a record with them. And I did. And when you got that message, were you <laughs> like, were you ecstatic? Were you super excited? Or were you just like confused? Like, hey, is this real? What's going on here? Yeah, I think I was like, huh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> like, I didn't expect this. So Cursive is the group that invited me out to record, just sort of like come out and record on our album. And I didn't actually know 
cursive. Like I had met Bright Eyes and Lullaby for the Working Class when I was at Brown, but I hadn't met cursive. And my best friend, who's still one of my best friends, was a cursive fan and like dumped all of their like CDs and like seven inches in my lap and was like, you need to listen to them. They're so good. And so I did. And I sort of like gave myself like a little cursive education. And then I I started to get really excited because I felt like there was a lot of interesting potential. Yeah. Moving out there was like not an easy decision. It was like very unknown for me. I love New York City and I always imagine myself here and I had never been to the Midwest. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know like, you know, what my, my expectations were. And I, I didn't also like at that time, like cursive was like a fairly well-known band, but it wasn't understood that I would move out there and that would be my job. Right. Like I was moving out there to sort of like join this community and like play in cursive and like do cursive stuff, go on tour, record records. But at that point, there was no promise that like, oh, I'm going to live off of this. And so I went to a temp agency and I did like paperwork in like an accountant's office and while also performing with cursive. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, though, like after the first year, things really took off after the ugly organ. And I would say at that point, I was no longer working in the temp office and we were going on long tours. And when I came home in between stretches on tour, I was like recovering from tour because it's quite exhausting and like working on like the next thing with the bands. Were you touring around like nationally or any international touring? Yeah, national and international. We went all over the States, Canada, and then European tours, like often cursive was very big in Germany. So we would spend a lot of time in Germany, Scandinavia. We went to Japan once. What an incredible post-university experience. It really, really was incredible. Playing music because of a skill that you formed very early on. And then working in New York at Carnegie Hall in a job that you weren't too excited about. And then you just get this like serendipitous phone call and you start listening to cursive records and seven inches and you're getting more and more excited. And all of a sudden you're traveling the world. That's like a dream scenario. Yeah, it was pretty dreamy. (laughs) And I think I recognized at the time. I mean, those first tours, we were like sleeping on, like I had my sleeping bag and we would be sleeping on hardwood floors, like in a, in like a row, yeah. you know, in like someone's apartment in like Arlington, you know, like, and I remember some of those first tours internationally, like in Germany, you would play the show and then everyone would leave and they would shut the lights off and we would just like sleep on the stage. And in the morning, the promoter, like the booker would come back and they would like have like bread and cheese and fruit and coffee. And it was just like this beautiful, but like we were sleeping on the, on the stage. <laughs> and you're, I mean, you're all doing it together. So it was cool, yeah. right? You just were a crew. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was great. I loved it. I really, really loved it. I look at your like work timeline between 2001 and 2010, which includes, you know, you're a touring international artist, but then you do a lot of other things in audio. Like you study with Rob Rosenthal at the Salt Institute, do some time at Studio 360, and then you go to radio and then audiobooks. So what are the next few years? How does this, like this audio adventure start to transform for you? While I was in cursive, there were like other parts of me that I felt needed feeding. And so I started writing for like the local alternative weekly in Omaha. And I was doing like book reviews and reviewing art shows and like doing like little pieces, which sort of like opened up to me this understanding that like journalism was something that I was really interested in. And while I was still essentially based in Omaha and still essentially based 
out of Saddle Creek. I came back to New York for a few months and did an internship at the Village Voice because I just really wanted to sort of like start exploring these paths of like what would potentially come next. I didn't necessarily think that I was meant to stay in Omaha like for the rest of my life. When I first moved out there, I thought, oh, like I'll give it a few years, see how it goes, and then like probably come back home to New York. And then things really took off. And so I didn't want to leave. And I was really having a great time and like loved it and loved everything that I was doing. And I think that at the time that chapter was coming to a close, it was sort of like naturally coming to a close. And I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do next. I was interested in journalism. I was interested, obviously, in like still thinking about like music and audio, although I think I needed a break for music after that time. Like when you're so intensively working on something like that, you just need a minute to like let everything kind of settle. Yeah, it's, it's all encompassing, right? You're just like uh-huh. living, breathing, eating music and the band. It's a lot. Yeah. So I took a couple of years and started to figure it out. Actually, something that's not on your list is I worked at a ringtone company. Okay. For a bit. It is audio based, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> but yeah, tell me about yeah. that. Um, it was just like I, you know, a job that I got. Actually, looking back now, I think that it was a company that was founded by two classical musicians. They mostly had contracts with major record labels, and you know, I remember turning um, Sean Paul's "Temperature" into a ringtone in okay. particular. It was like just like chopping things into little eight seconds and looping them and like mastering them. And were you doing the technical uh, work as well? Not really. You know, you spend time in the studio and so you you learn and you pick up things. Like I wasn't like recording the band, but that was the first time that I got my own Pro Tools set up. And so I had my own Pro Tools set up, like was using it for my own little projects at home. But I was not like uh, technically involved with like the making of of any of the records I was on now, except for playing on them. But you were, yeah, you were dabbling in Pro Tools then pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. I had like the original M-Box, which is like this big plastic, weird alien looking object with just like a couple of little knobs on it. I finally got rid of it a couple of years ago. I held on to it for a long time. And now you don't even need it. So you're dabbling. And then I know that you spent time as a producer at the store with Dick Gordon, North Carolina, and then you went mm-hmm. to audiobooks. Is that when things started to take shape for you of knowing kind of what you wanted to do? I think as soon as I went to SALT to study with Rob Rosenthal is when I knew that that's what I wanted to do. You know, it took a few years after Cursive to like kind of like reset a little bit. And then I, you know, started working at the Ringtone Company and began to have conversations with people about like where all my interests collided, right? Like I loved working in sound, storytelling and journalism were really important to me. I don't think like at that point that, there was a whole lot that I was exposed to apart from like NPR, This American Life and Studio 360 were sort of like the major outlets for audio storytelling that like I understood and like spent time with. And I just remember having a meal with someone who I don't recall his name, but he's done a lot of illustrations for like This American Life and like public radio outlets. Yeah. And he was like, there's this place. It's called Salt. You can learn how to do this there. And so I just decided that I was going to like step down this path, right? Yeah, Um, And and Salt is based in Maine, is that right? Yeah, so I moved to Maine for six months. I was very excited. I got a merit scholarship to go there. Oh, wow. Um, And like, (laughs) yeah, and I basically, like there's so many fundamentals that I learned there that I use every single day now, still. I think Rob Rosenthal is absolutely brilliant and like he has trained so many radio producers. It's insane. Of all the learnings from Rob, just like what's one that comes to mind quickly that you use every day? I don't know that this is one I use every day, but it's one that's really stuck with me is he really counseled 
to be really mindful when thinking about adding music to a story. He used the phrase emotional fascism. Essentially, like, if you need to rely on the music to tell the listener how to feel, then you haven't done your job in sort of crafting a good story. So, like, the bones of the story, like the structure, the content, the sort of, like, stakes and tension, and the character you've chosen, like, all of that have to clear a certain hurdle. And then you can start thinking about adding music. But if you're relying on the music to sort of create tension or drama or emotion, then you've kind of missed something. Yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> what a great insight. I like that. Emotional yeah. fascism. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget. <laughs> so after, after the Salt Institute, what's next? I got an internship at WNYC at Studio 360. You know, at that time, the internship system at New York Public Radio was like largely unpaid. I think I got $12 a day. So I interned, I think, three or four days a week, and then I had like two other jobs. <laughs> Just to um, make ends meet, to make it work. Yeah. I worked at a coffee shop like most mornings, and then I worked at a Pilates studio many afternoons and on the weekend. So it was like a lot. I was really running at like full steam, but I really enjoyed the internship there. And then that was my first real glimpse into what it was like to work in a team to make like impactful audio storytelling. And I learned a lot there too. Uh, the team there was really amazing. Yeah, so Studio 360 was fantastic. And then a friend of mine had found out about this gig at The Story with Dick Gordon. Hmm. It was a short-term contract producer role, like filling in for someone who was out on leave. And I got the job and I moved down to Durham, North Carolina and, you know, found an apartment, brought my cat and worked on that show for a few months, which I think was a pretty crucial experience to have had, which helped open the door into WNYC. Why is that? So this was in like 2008, nine. And there weren't like a whole lot of opportunities in the audio storytelling space. Like your major opportunities were at public radio stations mm. and public radio stations were highly competitive. They didn't have a lot of turnover. They understood that they were the only game in town if this was like the career path that you were interested in going down. So having had a job at a radio station on staff on a show was such a huge opportunity. I don't know that I was like chomping at the bit to leave New York or like move to Carolina, although I loved it there. And I had friends who lived there that I knew from the Salt Creek community. So it was really like great. Like I moved down there and I didn't have to, like, I can't recall ever like feeling like lonely, right? Like I immediately had this community of people, which was amazing. But that gig was only three months. And so yeah. I came back to New York and like basically spent like the next couple of years like banging on the door to get back into WNYC, which is when I went to the audiobooks company where quite a few <laughs> radio producers worked. Like that's yeah. how I found out about it. Like there were folks who had passed through Studio 360 or elsewhere. And my boss at the audiobooks company is David Markowitz, who is now currently working in the podcasting department at Netflix. And he previously was at Pushkin and mm. at Headspace. And he, so he and I, although our paths crossed at that moment, like because our paths have continued to cross over and over again since, yeah. since that time working together at the audiobooks company. Audiobooks wasn't my passion. Um, you know, but while I was there, I got the idea to pitch the podcast to the audiobooks company, which they agreed to let me do. And so I had this outlet to just do a little bit of 
experimenting and to like grow some skills and also have just like an outlet to doing this kind of work that I wanted to be doing. Had you ever pitched a project or an idea before to any place that you worked at? I pitched stories to Studio 360. Yeah. But to pitch an idea for something that had not existed before, no. (laughs) It becomes, uh, I believe, the Modern Scholar podcast. Is that right? Yeah. You've done like really deep, (laughs) (laughs) deep research. Look, it helps to tell your story. All right. so, So you pitch and then you get the green light, which must feel, you know, validating. It's like, okay, this is a good idea. But now it's got to be more than a pitch you got to execute. Was that intimidating or were you like, no, I'm, I'm ready to go. I got it. I was ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. They had a, an audiobook series called The Modern Scholar. Professors would come in and record like 10 hours worth of like Italian history. And so what I did was just have a one hour interview with the professor who was the author of this series and talk about their work, go into detail on something really specific. I will say at that time that like I applied for a mentorship with AIR, the Association of Independence and Radio. They gave me a mentor and I had like a few sessions with him and it was great. Like I had someone, I had an editor, yeah. right? I wasn't totally on my own kind of like muscling through. And so he really sort of helped refine the ideas for that show. And that was a great help. Yeah. So I'm, I'm lucky that I, I was able to get that. What I'm really hearing, Greta, is that you moved around a lot and <laughs> participated in and developed like all these different music and audio communities around the U.S. and even the world from mm-hmm. like Omaha and international touring in Scandinavia and Europe and then the Salt and Maine and North Carolina and New York and more. And I'm sure, as you said with David Markowitz, that these relationships are now serving you in your current business. So it feels like that was like a really good investment of your time where the networking was great, but you also learned a lot and were exposed to a yeah. lot of different thinking and ideas. Is that right? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. After uh, you know dabbling around a bit for the first decade of the 2000s, you then go to WNYC and you're there for around six years, I think 2008 to 2014. And you work on some cool projects. You're the associate producer at Freakonomics and you also work on Soundcheck. So tell me about What made you commit to WNYC and what were you working on when you first got there? At the time, there weren't a lot of options for people doing this work. And WNYC obviously is, is an incredible place where really amazing work is done, really talented people. It basically was like the game in town, right? Like there weren't a lot of other places where you could do audio storytelling work in this way. Yeah, There was a pivotal moment that I think could have gone in a different direction. But I had applied for a job at StoryCorps and I applied for the job at Soundcheck. What is StoryCorps? They have a a story every Friday on NPR. It's like a little three minute edited story. And it's usually like two people in conversation with each other. It's highly personal. And they're like very well known for like these like human connection stories. Mm. It's, I think, influenced in part by like oral history um, and anthropology but it's basically this like intimate storytelling. And I did not get that job, although I was a runner up. And the person who did get the job is now one of my closest friends. <laughs> um, but I, at the same time, was an applicant for Soundcheck. And, yeah. and I did get that job. And I think it was that was the right path for me because I have such a passion for music, right? My background kind of really like led me to have an understanding of like how to tell those stories. What is the Soundcheck format? It changed over time. But when I joined Soundcheck, it was a live daily show about music and really like open, like wide open as far as like 
what it covered. So in any given episode, like you could have like Yoko Ono there for an interview. You could have the author of a book about musicals from the 1920s. And then you could have like a live performance from like parquet courts. So it was really wide ranging and varied and super interesting. And there's so much about working on a daily show that's, I think, extremely crucial to like building up chops as a producer, Hmm. because you every single day you have a brand new like blank slate. You have to work extremely quickly and efficiently. Working in the live setting can create so much pressure because not only are you like Keeping to a clock, like the show went from like 2.01 to like 2.50 every day. And there had to be certain breaks and you have an engineer and like you need the music to cue in a certain place. And so you're like, cue the music. And like you're whispering to the host, like move on to the next question. And like there's just, you're like this like master puppeteer with like all these marionettes and it's, it's pretty wild. It's really fun. Super stressful. You make a mistake (laughs) and it's like, you can't fix it. You just have to move on and you learn a lot. And it feels like something... You do that for maybe a, a couple of years or a few years, and then it's like, all right, you need a break from that. It, it's amazing that people who work in like live video or live radio for mm-hmm. decades, like kudos to the, to the stamina that they build up. And that's exactly what happened is I needed a break from it. And that's when I went to Freakonomics. Got it. Before we go into Freakonomics, you also helped create Soundcheck into an omni-channel media brand where you were launching video and live events and interactive series. Was that something that had been happening in the audio industry or were you kind of setting like a new precedent? Our team was tapped to reinvent Soundcheck. Yeah. So it had been this live daily show for quite some time. And I think that, that WNYC wanted to reshape it yeah. for a variety of reasons. So we were sort of tasked, like we pulled the show off the air and kind of went through this like sprint of reimagining what the show could be, how it would sound, what it would do. Yeah. And actually, I remember that I pitched this video series that was a lot of fun. I can't remember the name of it now, but we worked with a local elementary school mm-hmm. and we would have three kids sitting behind desks and we would play them clips from pop songs Ooh. and they would review them. <laughs> That's a really cool idea. It was Awesome. It was so much fun. We did a lot of live performances and I started producing sort of like more like highly produced segments and storytelling for Soundcheck at that time because there was more space to try and figure that out. Ultimately, what it turned into was like a daily delivery of a show that I think ultimately like resembled the old show in many ways, but it was not live anymore. And there were all these other channels. I also created a like first listen type series for Soundcheck at that time where we would like stream a new album before it came out and I would write a little review and it was really fun. When we pulled the show off the air and we were tasked with reimagining it, it was like a sandbox that you just kind of could play in, which was great. It's a wide open canvas that you can paint to how you desire. I get that why you were burnt out after that. So then you change it up and you become an associate producer at Freakonomics and you work with the famed Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt. How was that experience? It was great. It was challenging. I think, you know, that show has incredibly high standards. And there's a particular kind of brain that I think works extremely well at that show. At the time, there were two of us who were the producers of the show, myself, who like has this background in music and in production. And then the other producer was an economist who had been freshly graduated from economic school. And so we were this pair. And I think what ultimately happened was that where I shone were these like human stories. And where he shone was like distilling econ papers into sort of understandable stories. And so I think the two of us together really complemented each other. One of my favorite episodes that I worked on um, was about the Nathan's hot dog contest. And one of the sort of like champs who had 
come up with a particular system for how to win. Dunking them in water and all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I, I, I remember watching some of those segments uh, online. In a minute, they put back like 47 hot dogs or something crazy. Yeah, it's wild. After uh, Freakonomics, you decided to depart for Midroll and Earwolf. What was the impetus for that? My time at Freakonomics was sort of like naturally coming to a close. I think that while my strength was in this sort of like human sort of storytelling, I think like the show needed someone who had a little bit more of that like econ background. And so I started to look around the station at WNYC of other places where I could land, right? Like I'd moved from Soundcheck to Freakonomics, like what would be the next place for me to go? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find it. Like I spent a little bit of time in the newsroom helping to look for a host for a new health podcast. And I had conversations with people around the station about various other shows. Like I think I talked to the folks at On The Media and this producer, Emily Botine, who ultimately founded the Alec Baldwin podcast and a host of other really great shows there, but it didn't seem like there was space or a role that really made sense for me as far as like the next step is concerned. At that time, Eric Dean, who's now the CEO of the Stitcher Empire, was in the finance office, I think at WNYC, and he left to go to Midroll slash Earwolf. I didn't realize he was also WNYC. Bannon was also WNYC who's now the chief mm-hmm. content officer over there. Wow. It was a, a feeder yeah. to that company. Yeah. So Eric Dean left WNYC, and I, I remember the note that went around. He's going to this company, Earwolf slash Midroll. And I was like, I kind of filed that away. Yeah. And then it was probably a few months later that they put a position, they were hiring for a producer. And I sort of leapt at the opportunity. I thought that the shows on Earwolf were awesome. I had not worked really in comedy, although I think that there was like so much crossover in Soundcheck. We really had a lot of license to have like basically like whoever on the show. Like I booked comedians, I booked authors, like I booked anyone who had a passion to talk about music, which is like 90% of the world. And so I think that that was really of interest to them. And I had a couple of conversations with Eric and and the job was mine. I mean, I, I went through like a- <laughs> You make a, it sound very a easy. proper vetting um, <laughs> and interview process. I know there yeah. were other candidates, but they gave it to me. And I was really, really excited because I think I was ready for a fresh start. I was ready for something new, something a little bit unknown. I think that I- tend to find typically, like, I, th- I think if you look over the course of like my my life, like every few years, I'm like, okay, what's the next thing? And I, I think that I still feel that way, except now I have like this entity of transmitter in which to keep like iterating and playing, but I was just ready for the next thing. And it was at that time, a really small company. I was the first New York based employee, like Eric was living in New Jersey. So he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't count as a New York employee. There was no office. If I remember like Jeff Ulrich was the founder and it was bootstrapped, didn't raise any venture capital and started, I think in the early 2000s, if I remember correctly. Is that right? I don't know the dates, but that sounds right. Okay. A little context for the listeners and Earwolf is a comedy podcast network. So there's a slate of comedy shows. And Midroll was the advertising arm of the business that would connect advertisers with the podcasters. But no, please continue. So you're the first New York hire. Yeah, which was really exciting to me. I was the first producer hired by the company. They had a few really amazing audio engineers out in LA who ran, you know, the recordings and they did editing, but there had never been a producer on staff. So it was really this like wide open field. 
And Jeff at that time, I think, had taken a step back from the company. But the moment that I was brought in is when the idea for Howl came into the picture. And Howl was a membership subscription-based app that has now turned into Stitcher and Stitcher Premium. It was folded in uh, into Stitcher and Stitcher Premium. But at the time, there was like this real push to create a subscription-based app with like a ton of new material. And one of my first jobs was to work extremely closely with Jeff to figure out what was going to be on this app. Who were we going to hire to make material? What producers, what comedians, what actors? There was an enormous spreadsheet, like one of the most enormous spreadsheets that I've ever (laughs) spent time with. So that was my first task. And alongside which was to sort of, from a producer's perspective, look at the slate of shows on Your Wolf. Yeah. And start to think about what would a producer bring to the network? What would a producer bring to the hosts, to the way that things were made, to new ideas to bring to the network? And so those two things were sort of happening concurrently. The producer role was not defined. You're the first producer there. So it's you coming in saying, here's how I can enhance the slate. Here's how I can enhance yeah. the content strategy of where we're headed. Concurrently with, we're launching Howl, which needs a lot of content, both from like partner podcasters and probably owned and operated. And then yeah. filling, you know, so creating then the slate that's going to fill that, that's going to make people want to buy the membership product or subscription product, you know, which are big questions that Spotify and Netflix and, you know, the biggest subscription platforms in the world have huge teams to figure out. And it's like you and Jeff and maybe a couple more people. Uh, There was one developer. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It was intense. It was a lot of work. I remember, because at that time too, I was the only New York-based person. Eric was in New Jersey. I think Lex Friedman came along he was either already there or came along shortly thereafter, also based in New Jersey. And Lex was running sales? Yes. Okay. And he's now with Art19. But there was no office. I was working from my kitchen table, much like I do now. <laughs> it was great. Like, it was, I think what really excited me was like the open field of really sort of figuring out what everything was going to be. Yeah. And it was like off to the races. So I actually reached out to a few people that we mutually know to just get like, oh, we know what are some stories I can have Greta talk about from the early mid-roll Earwolf days? So I um, I reached out to Adam Sachs, who was also on this podcast earlier. He's a, a childhood friend of mine that was also the CEO of the company when it sold the scripts, as well as Chris Bannon, who I consider one of the most like delightful humans on the planet. I think he was the chief content officer while you were there, and he still yes. is now under Eric as part of this new like Stitcher mid-roll combined empire. And what Chris said is that, like you mentioned, Greta, no office for the first six months, and that you were taking meetings, I think, in sound booths as well. (laughs) And that when you finally did get an office, it was so small that you were taking turns sitting down. Yeah, well, we put our own furniture together. I learned so much from my years at Earwolf that have completely guided and shaped a lot of how Transmitter kind of came into being. Okay, But yeah, we put all of our furniture together ourselves um, in this first office. That's good training for like you know you launching Transmitter where it's lean budgets, <laughs> you're funding from your savings, you probably had to set up your own furniture yourself too. So that, that DIY attitude persists. Yeah, yeah. And it was exciting. Like, 
you know, whereas a, a place like WNYC is this like well-oiled machine. It's also like a big ship that like in order to turn, 30 people have to be sort of like moving things around and like, is the sky clear? And, you know, there's just like so many little tiny steps that have to be taken to like make a decision. Whereas what working at that early stage at Earwolf meant was like, you can just make decisions. You just yeah. do it. Eric and I went around to see like five different offices. We decided together, oh, let's take this one hmm. <laughs> on 8th Avenue. You know, this is the furniture. All right, let's put it together. I remember walking in to the office when the furniture was first delivered and it was like, extremely dusty. And like, we were wearing dust masks and like trying to figure out like, where's the studio going to go? And it was just yeah. really exciting. It's really exciting to sort of like pave your way and like build something from the ground up. I like what you're saying too, is that, you can make just get things done very quickly. And that's actually yeah. one of the things that Bannon brought up about working with you is you guys launch good shows, I think, in just a matter of a few months or less. Like <laughs> Bitch, Sesh, and Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, which was a number one hit on iTunes. And that now, like making shows like that, if you're at a bigger company with all the bureaucracy and the approvals, can take over a year. But you guys were getting mm -hmm. stuff done fast. There was yeah. no alternative choice. Yeah, we were working very quickly. So I'm curious to hear like beautiful stories from anonymous people. That's a like an iTunes topper. Was that the first like big podcast hit that you had in your career? I would say so. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what if anything came ahead of it, but I'm fairly certain that some of my first meetings after joining the team at Earwolf were with Chris Gathard and working with him on sort of early prototypes of beautiful stories from anonymous people. Yeah. And he's a remarkable person. He's a brilliant comedian. He's such a good human being. He's an amazing collaborator. And yeah, it was the two of us for a while. Just, I think the first call that we took, which was like sort of just the prototype, the pilot for the show. Yeah. We're like, we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like, is anyone going to call? And yeah, I mean, it was it was really awesome working on that show. And also, it was such a departure from the kinds of projects that I had worked on previously, hmm. which were extremely buttoned up, like very like highly produced in the sense that like every single step that you took in the process was like regimented, okay. right? Like making a Freakonomics episode, making an hour of sound check, like thinking about that live daily experience. Like you can't have a minute on the clock that's not accounted for hmm. in making those things. And it, here is a show where we just open a phone line and see what happens for an hour. And it's so freeing to be sort of separated from that regimentation. Yeah. And working with Chris Gethard, I think, taught me that, you know, you can make something that's really compelling and that's really good. And it was highly produced. Like a lot of thought went into it. There's yeah. a lot of post-production, but it didn't need to be the kind of thing where like every single minute of that hour was like a line on a spreadsheet. And I love that show. I think that we're all like voyeurs of other people's experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's super interesting the way that people are willing to call and sort of like bear their souls to Chris. Yeah. And working on that show was, was fantastic. And it was really gratifying and really rewarding when we realized that people were paying attention and they were going to listen. And yeah. that, you know, for that to be one of the first projects of like my tenure at Earwolf was great. It was great. That's awesome. What a cool story. Bannon even mentioned you work on, I think, Casey Holford's Heaven's Gate, which is now an HBO Max series. I think that just came out this week or something. Some big projects. All right. So look, in 2015, Midroll slash Earwolf sells to Scripps, EW Scripps. Then I think in 2017 is when you start Transmitter Media. I'm curious to hear that after like, you know, this fun sprint 
at Midroll and the sale and launching the shows and launching Hal and Wolfpop and all the things. What got you thinking about becoming a founder, which is a very different experience than you know, what you had done for the first 10, 15 years of your career? So after the sale, I think that Adam Sachs kind of offered me the opportunity to reshape my role a little bit. So I had been overseeing the Earwolf shows, developing and producing brand new shows. And Howell was in the rear view at that point for me, I believe. I think this is like a classic situation. They're like, we're going to split your job into two, which half do you want? And I was like, this is great (laughs) because it had been a lot to be developing new shows, to have the sort of slate of shows at Earwolf requiring my attention. And I picked the path of new development. And that's when they went out and found someone to executive produce the Earwolf Network. And in my new role, I needed to build a team and a division. So I had to hire really quickly about six producers to like form a team. And there wasn't really a human resources. And so it really fell on me to read every application that came in and kind of vet all of the candidates and begin that process of like selecting who to talk to. And I probably spent about six months just interviewing. I think that I learned a lot from that process. And I think like it developed in me like a little bit of an eye for how to spot talent and people that I want to work with. Hmm. But it also was like supremely exhausting. And at the same time, I think that the company was in a real state of renewal and flux and change following the sale to scripts, which I think is probably common in any situation where a company is acquired by a company that has like a different POV, like maybe doesn't understand podcasting, has its own goals that are separate from what the goals had been at Earwolf. So there were just like a lot of strategy shifts that I did my best to kind of keep up with, but ultimately found myself thinking like, well, if I were setting the strategy, what would I do, right? If I were reimagining sort of the direction that this company was going in, what would I do? And I looked around and Pineapple Street had been around for a few months, maybe six months. And I went and had some chats with them about sort of like what they were doing and what they wanted to do. And I went over and had a chat with the folks at Gimlet thinking like maybe there would be a place for me there. But ultimately out of my conversations with all of those people was this kind of like clarifying feeling that like there was something that I wanted to do and that I Mm. wanted to do it differently. And I would say like, it was definitely like burnout that kind of like led me to thinking about like what I wanted to do next Yeah, because it felt like where I was at was like a little bit unsustainable. It was scary Like I definitely spent a month sort of like quaking with fear on the couch. Like, is this something that I'm going to do? Um, You know, what does it take and what do I need? And are there like long-term consequences that like I can't really think of yet? Because I'd always had a job, right? Like (laughs) I always worked for someone else and enjoyed the freedom, frankly, that that gives you, right? Like you show up, you do the work and then you leave and you can go and take care of whatever. And so I just spent a lot of time thinking about it and talking to friends. My close friend who gave me the curse of records back in the day has run a press, a small press for nearly as long as I've known him. And it's a small nonprofit, but 
it requires the same levels of sort of like entrepreneurship and sort of like discipline in a way. Yeah, discipline. That's exactly the word. And so I talked to him a lot about how he figured out what he was doing. My brother has had his own post-production business for film hmm. for more than five years. And so I went for dinner with him and talked about, you know, his business relies on film clients who come yeah. to him with a movie that needs, you know, mixing and sound effects and sound design. And so we talked about that. And my husband was acquiring a business. He purchased a retail shop in our neighborhood around the same time too. So there was like a lot of this around me yeah. where I had, I had just a lot of conversations about this and I decided to do it. I decided that like the fear was not a good enough reason to not do it. Yeah. And my alternate path, to be quite frank, was to leave podcasting because I just couldn't see where my next step was going to be. And so I thought I would take the more productive path, the one where I didn't leave podcasting. And I made this decision in December of 2016 to myself and then spent the next couple of months just like tucking away money. And when I, I say that, like I saved money before starting the business, yeah. I saved $7,000. Like this is not like an enormous like coffer of like startup money, but it was enough to pay for like an office space and to kind of like pay for myself yeah. for like a couple of months to just like see what would happen. And I gave extremely early notice at mid-roll and I started to look for clients before I left. So I set it up so that by the time I finally left mid-roll in the end of March of 2017 and walked into my office, my new office for Transmitter Media, like on the 3rd of April of 2017, like I already had clients. So this also gave me that like added like security of like, I'm not just like walking into this like empty pit of like, who knows what, like I have work to do. Look, that's just like an amazing transition story. But a couple <laughs> things stand out. One, this like double entrepreneur household where a lot of, you know, a lot of couples <laughs> that I talk to will say one will start a new venture business that's risky while other has like a W2 salaried income. But your husband had just bought a, re a local retail shop in the neighborhood you were launching Transmitter Media, so you were smart about mitigating risk of lining up clients in advance. But yeah, it's a lot to take on. And the second thing I heard that I think is really interesting is you felt that there was no path for you to stay in podcasting unless you started your own business. So it's either get it out felt and do that way. Yeah, get out and do something totally different or commit and go deeper with this incredible network and skill set that you've built up for a decade and a half and start your own mm -hmm. thing. You committed to it. And yeah, whether it was meager savings at 7,000, it was enough and you had the confidence. And I think in the early days, confidence is everything that you need. Tell us about what is Transmitter Media or what was it at that point? Transmitter Media was born as a like full service creative podcast company, meaning primarily working for clients who needed podcast production. And it's really 360 ideation. You know, there's like a paragraph that explains what they want the podcast to be. And then we figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. Like it's quite rare that someone comes in the door and they have like a fully fleshed out idea for a show that has all of the episodes outlined and the guests and the this and the that. So it's really starting with like a kernel of an idea, figuring out how to make it, what it needs, what's the format and executing it all the way up to launch and continued production. And, you know, I think that I saw what Pineapple Street was doing. I respect Jenna and Max from Pineapple Street so much. Yeah. And it felt like 
the right model, essentially like doing what film production companies do or in a way kind of like what advertising agencies do. You have clients, your clients have a story that they want to tell. And as a production company, you figure out how to tell it and how to tell it really well. And I think that for me, having a focus on craft was really important, quality over quantity and taking the time to really figure out creatively what does something need was how I stepped into it. Clearly, as the industry is growing in in terms of more audio listenership, more brands wanting to figure out the space, and it's still early. I think in 2019, the ad market for audio is like 750 million. So you starting the company is like two to three years before that. When you look at the total advertising landscape, which is like over, I think, 600 billion globally. But, you know, brands are leaning in. They want to figure it out. And you have a knack for audio storytelling. And then you commit and so who are some of the early clients you work with? I think they were Walmart and Spotify. And what, what did those first early projects look like? And had you had experience working with brands before? Or was it like, all right, I have a skill set, but I kind of got to figure this out on the fly too. So it was Walmart, Spotify, and Ted, I think were the three sort of major clients at the very beginning. Yeah, I hadn't worked directly with brands I understood working with other media institutions. I understood working with hosts. I also like understood developing new shows because yeah. that's what my team did at Midroll, Stitcher, Earwolf um, before I left. Yeah. Um, you know, an entire year of just coming up with ideas and piloting them and throwing them at the wall and kind of running them through PLs and doing all of that. Yeah. And so I understood all of that. So we have worked directly with brands, but with Walmart, it was running through an advertising agency full of really great creative people. And so we were interfacing more with them. And I think that I learned through them a little bit more about how to work with a client like Walmart. But I think also that everyone we were working with at that time was also trying to figure it out for themselves in a brand new way. Yeah. So we've now been working with Ted for over three and a half years. Wow. But at the time, the show that we developed with them, Work Life with Adam Grant, I think was their first sort of step into like the sort of slate of podcasts that they have now. They had TED Talks Daily. It was sort of concurrently like, like I know what the steps to take and the people that I am making these podcasts for don't, they've never done it. Yeah. And so I think I learned a lot in those first few projects about how to deliver, how to communicate what we're doing clearly. Yeah. But it's not like I hadn't already done that before. Like I had those skills. It's just was like refining them and putting them into this like really particular box. Yeah. Just a little bit of a different application makes makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. When we were talking about having to build a development team at Midroll and Earwolf, that you said that you had a, like a unique sense of how to identify good people. So then you start building your own team at Transmitter. And it seems that you've built a pretty special team there. So what was your eye of like, when you think about, if I need great people to make Transmitter a success, what type of people were you looking for? And what has like your culture become at your company? I love my team so much. I agree. I think they're really special. I think like independent thinkers, people who have a really unique creative spark, people who surprise me, right? Like yeah. I I think that what I learned in doing all those interviews at Midroll was like I prepare a lot for for interviews. Like kind of much like you prepared for this. Like <laughs> yeah. I would do deep dives. I would listen to a lot of work from the 
people who were coming in who had applied for the roles. I also, like, over the years, like, there are certain producers who I'll just kind of, like, keep in touch with or follow their work and be excited by their work and hope that one day they might like to come, like, work at Transmitter. And so... I also am really keen on people who have like a collaborative spirit. So an independent thinker who's like down to collaborate, who doesn't necessarily need to like put their fingerprints all over everything and is like cool if their fingerprints kind of like merge with other people's fingerprints. And like we've got this really sort of like group dynamic where we're really, everyone is contributing towards something. And like people own projects, people own stories, people own episodes. But ultimately, like, I think that we have a very like collaborative team environment. And we're also a a group of people who like to like celebrate our successes, even like the teeniest, tiniest ones. And so we spend a lot of time like talking about the things that go well. And I think that creates a lot of like pride in work and I'm interested in working with people who have that same sense of craft as I do. It's not necessarily about perfection, but it's about doing really good work, making something sound as good as it can possibly be. We have an episode that on Monday I got an email about saying, this is in its final edit. I'm not looking for any big edit changes. I'm only looking for notes on music. And I listened to it and I was like, ah, (laughs) Is this from a client? A big editorial note. <laughs> yeah. Was this a client email or internal? No, it's internal. Okay. I have a big editorial note and here's why. And I know that you thought you were almost done, Yeah. but it's going to be so much better because of this. And typically like as a group, we come to that agreement very quickly that it's going to be better. And like our goal is to make work that sounds very, very good. I think that's how you build a great company and also become successful and are fulfilled in that like yesterday's win or yesterday's excellence is today's baseline. Mm -hmm. And you just keep upping like the threshold. And my team calls me out for doing that all the time. But I always say, yeah, I hired you guys because men and women, you're incredible and I'm going to hold you big. And that makes for a fun work environment. And it's all in like our mutual best interest. So I like hearing you say that, Greta. And you talked about celebrating wins often. What is like a recent win that you guys celebrated, big or small? I mean, (laughs) earlier today, we recorded an interview where the host was in a studio in D.C. Our guest was in her home under a blanket fort in New Jersey. We had a little bit of a technical mishap before it started. One of the newer producers on our team was sort of like managing that. And I know that that could have been a situation where she got so stressed out that she could have been paralyzed by like the overwhelming sort of like urgency of overcoming this technical mishap but she like was calm and she kept us informed of what she was doing and she figured it out and the interview started late and it went long but that was fine and like you got to give someone a thumbs up for that (laughs) like like, that was hard and you figured it out and another recent win is we are about to launch season two of our podcast rebel eaters club and we have a like promotions team working for us this time and we're making new artwork and we've got the episodes of the season in production. And it's just exciting for me when all the pieces start to come together yeah. and we're like, you know, a month away from launch and it's not done and it will get done. But like right now it's just this like ball of energy and that feels very exciting. This is your first owned and operated podcast where yes. your business has helped create audio stories for a variety of different 
brands and marketers and publishers. And now you're, in, you're investing in your own IP, which is really exciting. And so what, what is the general concept of Rebel Eaters Club for people who want to check it out? Rebel Eaters Club is a podcast about breaking up with diet culture. Ooh. So yeah, our host is, her name is Virgie Tovar, and she's sort of like one of the leading voices on breaking up with diet culture because it's extremely harmful. It is a huge industry. It's a debilitating thing that is, you know, Fat discrimination is something that's like a not very often discussed, but such a huge sort of like point of discrimination in our culture. And I have learned so much from this podcast. It's funny. It's a weird. There's a lot of like eating of snacks. Our, our new season is in part a sort of cultural history of food, yeah. which speaks very much to my American studies heart. Like one episode is a little bit of like a social history of like home economics. Another talks about like the sort of origins and evolutions of potato chips. So it's really like a celebration of body positivity. It's a celebration of like enjoying food and enjoying what we eat and enjoying like our bodies. And I I couldn't be more proud of like our first original show being this show. Last year, I decided that like the next push for Transmitter would be to really start to make original shows and to tip the balance of client work to originals. And, you know, I think we'll always have client work and we love working with our clients. Yeah. Like right now, you know, you know, we were just working on a project with CNN and we're working with NBC and we continue to work with Ted and love working on those projects. They often come with amazing hosts and incredible resources and like access to really interesting places and people and stories. But for me, there's so much I get a lot of joy and like gratification out of the original shows. You know, where we control the narrative on everything. We need a new piece of artwork. I hire someone to make it and I sign off on it, right? Like, and it's really exciting. And so we have the goal for next year is to add several more original shows. And we're sort of well on our way to that. I love that. You guys are bootstrapped, right? Starting with your $7,000 of savings, you have not raised any outside capital. Um, no. But you funded the business by your agency work, but you know, you guys like to do, it builds your brand. It also gets you paid and you learn from it. You know, you're not investing in originals maybe as fast as like a Gimlet or, you know, a Ringer before their exits, but you know, you and the team own hundred percent of the company and you're building slowly and what could also last for a lifetime. I look at that approach as what we're doing, you know, also at Rockwater as well, which is, yeah, we do a lot of client advisory, haven't raised any outside money, nor would it make sense. But launching a podcast, launching newsletters, and it takes a lot of time and it goes slower than if you had a lot of funding. But yeah. you know, you're building something special that has a different ownership stake and it feels really good. So kudos to you. And I'll call this out. We're going to wrap up the transmitter and move on to the rapid fire to close it out. But before we do, I give you kudos where in working with one of our clients, Film Nation, as they were building out their audio slate, oh. I think I'd been connected to you a few years ago through Adam Sachs, our mutual friend. And as we were talking to different podcast producers, we put you in touch with Film Nation and you created great work in, uh, in doing hypothetical for them for Luminary. And when you speak about just like your focus and emphasis on quality and always pushing the envelope, I think that very much came out in that format. And so kudos to you guys for doing such great work and making us look good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we loved working with Film Nation. They're great. They're awesome. Milan and Alyssa and the whole team over there, they're just fantastic. To close out the Transmitter Media story, where is the audio industry headed and what role does like Transmitter want to play in that? What are just like a couple beats or points that stand out to you? I think that we're going to see more well-produced audio fiction 
I think that that's a space that's still in development. And I think that there are a few really standout examples of audio fiction that feels like watching a film. And I'm really interested in that in that direction. I'm really interested in seeing what people do. And I'm very interested in participating in it. So that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to. I'm curious. I don't have like a prediction for this, but I'm really, really curious to see what all of these continued sort of like acquisitions and consolidations lead to, right? Like I saw a tweet right before this about Amazon is seriously considering buying Wondery, who had put themselves up for sale a few weeks ago. So who knows what will happen by the time this podcast comes out. But I think it's just really interesting to sort of like see the consolidation that's happening. I'm good friends with folks who have had their shops acquired over the last few years or or are in joint ventures. And I'm just interested to understand like how do those relationships, how does that flow of money, how do those the sort of like desires that are set by the acquiring organizations, like how does like what is that going to lead to? Like what are we going to see more of? What are we going to see less of? I'm just sort of like have my eyes open about that. The amount of M&A activity has been wild, right? Like Spotify, I think the biggest purchase recently was Megaphone, but having bought Gimlet and Parcast and Anchor before that, and then the purchase of The Ringer and then Entercom with Pineapple Street and Cadence 13, I believe. So there's just like the amount of dollars that are flowing in and even like the bigger rights deals where it's Spotify and Joe Rogan and then not yet finalized, but Howard Stern and Sirius. So I agree with you. Curious to how it all shakes out and what it means for the smaller mid-sized players and those who maybe are not aggressively capitalized Mm -hmm. and what it means for the different types of content formats that will emerge in the future and how audio will start playing a role with also like the big streaming wars. We think about this a lot. Like what is podcasting for Netflix and for Mm -hmm. promoting Paramount Plus and HBO Max? One thing that we've been writing about is the proliferation of smart speakers and at-home audio where a lot of like radio and podcasting was made for commuting and people that are on the go outside the home. But now with COVID, plus the proliferation of smart speakers where they're going to overtake wearables, I think they already did just this year, 640 million smart speakers forecast by 2024. What is smart speaker microcast content going to look like? That's personalized, (laughs) that's interactive and short form. Who knows? I think it's but very exciting, right? So we are now down to the rapid fire and the end, uh, end of the program. So the rules are simple, about six questions, and you can answer in just a couple words or a couple short sentences, but they're meant to be uh, quick and from the gut. Are you ready? Yeah. Proudest life moment. This is hard. (laughs) Proudest life moment. Yeah. Oh my God. Or proudest transmitter moment. I could say that my proudest life moment thus far is probably like what I've built with transmitter. You know, I could say, like, I was thinking, like, oh, like, this performance with Cursive or, like, this big move that I made. But I think that making the decision to start Transmitter is probably my proudest life moment so far. What do you want to do less of in 2021? In 2021, I want to look at Twitter less. Okay. What do you want to do more of in 2021? Take more long walks in the woods with my dog and teach her tricks. I love that. I think walks are the absolute, like, highlight of the day when you can get them in. I agree. What one to two things drive your success? I think I have a really strong work ethic that I got from my mom. She showed her work. Like she was working, she worked a lot and she cared a lot and she sort of showed us what work ethic is. My interest and like real desire to make beautiful things. I want to make work that's beautiful, that resonates with people that they connect with. 
Got it. And I care about the people I work with, like a lot. And I'm interested in exploring and have been exploring over the last, you know, three and a half years with Transmitter, what like less hierarchical company structure and culture can be. Final rapid fire, three questions. Quick answers. <laughs> My answers are too long. <laughs> it's okay. You'll, you'll make these short. Uh, advice for media and audio execs going into 2021. These are hard. Just like whatever comes to mind. You don't, you know, this doesn't have to be perfect. Like other people have said, like, follow the money. <laughs> don't follow the money. Don't follow the money. Any future startup ambitions other than Transmitter? Nope, not right now. Here's an easy one. How can people get in contact with you, Greta? Go to the Transmitter website, transmitter.fm, and we have an email address where anyone can reach out to us there. Awesome. And you can follow me on Twitter where I don't post much, but I lurk a lot. Yeah, you are watching on Twitter, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, well, cool. Greta, this has been a delight. Thank you for being on the podcast. This was fun. Thank you. This was really fun. You know, talking to Greta, who is just so kind and warm-hearted and just cares so much about her craft, just yet again reminds me of these special people that the podcasting industry attracts. And they are such a delight to be around. And I'm just really excited for the industry that they are going to build, which is just still so nascent. All right, before wrapping up, just another quick reminder that we are hosting our live stream media and commerce conference that's coming up in the second quarter of this year. And we're going to have some uh, great speakers, panels, and keynotes. We're looking for more people to get involved. If you're interested, just shoot us a note at hello at wearerockwater.com. All right, that's it, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Come Up is written and hosted by me, Chris Irwin, and is a production of Rockwater Industries. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe wherever you listen to our show. And if you really dig us, feel free to forward the Come Up to a friend. You can sign up for our company newsletter at wearerockwater.com forward slash newsletter. And you could follow us on Twitter at TCUPod. The Come Up is engineered by Daniel Turek. Music is by Devin Bryant. Logo and branding is by Kevin Zazali. And special thanks to Andrew Cohen and Sean Dipp from the Rockwater team. <laughs>